Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and this is the podcast that digs into all of the wonderful games that Warlord Games makes. Um, now, we have talked quite a while, uh, quite a few episodes now. We've been digging back into older game systems, and we've, we've hopped forward with a few new releases, but I have been getting comments, I've been getting questions, I have been getting wonderings, never-endingly, about one episode. And everyone wants to know when Victory at Sea is coming. And ladies and gentlemen, today is that day. I am so excited to be talking about Warlord's upcoming giant naval battle game. No, not Cruel Seas. No, not Black Seas. We're talking Victory at Sea, another sea game. This is exciting. A lot of people excited about this, including me. I have my box. It's shipped. It's in the mail. I cannot wait for it to arrive in Australia. But I cannot, of course, talk about this game without bringing in one of the authors, uh, a man who's been on before when we talked about SPQR. Of course, I'm talking about Mr. Sprange from Mongoose. Matt, welcome to the Warlord cast. How are you? Oh, very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, mate. There has been so much excitement about this game uh, prior to its release. And now that uh, we are just about to the official release date, I mean, the excitement's palpable. It is pretty cool. You have to be excited. I know COVID slowed everything down for a lot of games across the world, but this was the one that I was waiting for. You got to be excited that, uh, that that light at the end of the tunnel is right in front of us. Oh, absolutely. Can't wait for uh, my own box set to arrive. Right. And I'm guessing yours will before me, given that uh, <clears throat> I'm on the other side of the planet. Um, well, let's talk about this, because there there have been a lot of questions. Um, some people say, you know, there has been a game previously called Victory at Sea, and it's a World War II naval game, and it's the same scale. What What is this that Warlord's putting out? Uh, it the, the miniatures are new, the game's new. How does it relate to the older game? Uh, can you explain that? Because there is a bit of a history to this. Yeah, it's um, it's effectively the uh, second edition of the game. Um, uh, my own company, Mongoose Publishing, did Victory at Sea uh, many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, we did it kind of like uh, as an experiment. We had already done um, uh, a Babylon 5 space combat game. And just out of curiosity, out of game design tinkering, I wondered if the rules could be more or less bent into um, uh, a naval game. So uh, I started uh, playing around with some World War II ships and it turns out it worked just fine. Um, it was more of a hobby than a serious product for the, for the longest time. Um, but we started releasing uh, a few bits and pieces of the rules for uh, uh, for free download and it started getting a good reception so we started looking at whether we were going to put an actual rule book out and I figured um, we could sell it would, <laughs> it was it was so off base from what we normally do which is rooted in uh, RPGs and mm -hmm. uh, at the time science fiction uh, miniatures games but I figured we could sell maybe 500 copies in the first three months and it would break even. And it's an interesting little experiment. Uh, we ended up selling the entire print run out um, within a few weeks and uh, we'd sold 4,000 odd copies within Whoa. the uh, first 
three or four uh, three or four months or something um so yeah it was altogether a lot more popular than we had anticipated so we put together a supplement and there's um uh, there's a world war one dreadnoughts um uh, rule set floating out there um and uh, yeah, yeah so we we carried on with that but um always had in the back of my head we really ought to do um uh, another edition um to tie tie a few things up um cover a few gaps in the uh, the ships and the fleet lists and what have you uh and take into account all the feedback we'd um had on the first game but um uh as a company mongoose has uh, moved away from miniatures games we're heavily into the rpgs these days but we're also very good friends with the chaps at warlord mm -hmm. um they had done their bolt action games um as far as we were concerned they were the world war ii company so what better fit for victory at sea so um, i had a quick chat with paul and john and um uh yeah they were interested yeah now a long time ago, John Stollard was on a Bolt Action podcast that I was hosting, and he toyed and he teased that we were getting a, a large-scale World War II naval game um, that things were being talked about. And uh, I know a lot of people think that that was Cruel Seas, but it was not. It was this, in fact. we This is a, a long time in the making, I understand, and so that we actually have... Uh, game now. A lot of people are asking another question that I get asked often: What is the difference between Cruel Seas and this? Well, obviously they're very different game systems. Um, both are World War II naval games, but Cruel Seas is a much smaller, or sorry, is a much larger scale. It's a PT boat size or slightly larger scale game. Victory at Sea is a one eighteen hundred model scale game but even then um, when you have the giant aircraft carriers and you have battleships and you have cruisers and you have you know four fighter planes on one tiny flight stand even then the rules very clearly say that uh, if the 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 way that this game is structured if you uh, are using these uh, the the miniatures on the board to navigate and have to measure distances, you're actually measuring from the bridge of the ship because realistically, that is the location of where the ship is, not the entire ship footprint, so to speak. It is literally just the bridge because the scale is so vast. If you go over 30 inches, you're assumed to be out of sight because of the curve of the earth. This is a that's, massive that's right, yeah. scale, right? <laughs> That's that's correct. Yeah. Um, what we wanted to do, I mean, this has been uh, a thing about uh, World War Two Nova games for decades. Um, and we, with the, the actual ground scale we got in the game is roughly equivalent to uh, one inch being uh, a thousand yards, I think it is or thereabouts. Wow. Um, but we couldn't do that with the actual models because you end up with the biggest battleships having teeny weeny models and they just become playing pieces. Um, and people um, come to this game already invested in the idea of individual ships. They have a passion for uh their favorite vessels a ship is more than just um uh, a fighting vehicle it isn't just another tank or another artillery piece it has uh, a personality if you like um so we wanted 
to a be able to fit everything onto a six by four table um, without needing uh, without go, going to the floor in a sports hall to uh, get the scales right right but at the same time we wanted individual ships to be identifiable down to cruiser level so you don't just get um, a Leander class model, for example. That's that's a bit boring. What you have is an individual Ajax or Achilles model. And if you know your ships, you will be able to identify them on the tabletop by their looks alone. Um, and to do that, you need, um, obviously, uh, larger models. And larger models are prettier. They um, uh, paint up nicer. Um, so we're, we're kind of um, uh, getting to two bites of the pie, if you like. Yeah, and it's it's a nice middle ground because not only do you get just large enough, as you said, to have the detail to be able to identify the ships, um, the, the beautiful models that Warlord have put out have the scenic bases built in around the ships, which allows you to really get in there with some really cool water effects and um, really makes for a cinematic-looking battlefield once you have your, your ships cruising across you know, an ocean uh, tabletop surface. It looks amazing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the um, uh, one of the debates we've been having about the uh, about the models in this game. I mean, what actually happened? You mentioned that this was teased like four odd years ago by John. Um, one of the um, issues we had is we'd already been working on this game. We had all the rules, all play tested, much of it already laid out. Um, but we had also had um, uh, over 100 models 3D designed and ready to go. Um, and we had scenic bases on them right from the start. Because one of the things we'd noticed is um, lots of companies produce ship models in the past, um, but without any kind of uh, basing. So what players were doing was putting their own bases on. Well, let's let's cut the middleman out there, put right. bases on on ourselves. That way they can be um, properly sculpted with uh, waves and wakes and things, makes them far easier to paint, makes them look a lot nicer at the end. Um, and what Warlord's actually done is put the uh, name and class of the ship on the side. So if you're not um, a World War II expert, you can still identify individual um, uh, ships within a class. Um, so, yeah, it was that that four year wait had a lot to do with the sheer uh, scale of this game. As I said, um, we delivered to Warlord well over 100 um, 3D model ships already designed. Um, the rule books were um, that we originally submitted were massive. Um, so it was just finding a way to break all that down into manageable chunks that uh, took up a, a lot of time. But um, no, that's that's the story behind the uh, the bases. Well, they're also great because it keeps people like me who have great big fingers from uh, putting my fingers all over the decks of the ship when I'm painting it. Uh, and it allows me to paint the water last. And I can do that without making a mess. So I very much appreciate it. Plus, as you mentioned, having the names of the ships on the side is genius. Um, for just quick reference, for those of us who can't identify you know, dif differentiate between U.S. aircraft carriers, for example, to have oh, each oh, yeah. individual ones. It makes a huge uh, difference when you're trying to match it up to individual ship cards when you're playing this game. Oh, indeed. Um, unfortunately, I can't take credit for that particular piece of uh, genius. Um, what I was originally um, looking to do was having um, 
uh, stickers printed up with uh, the flag of the um, Navy plus the uh, ship's name that um, goes on top of the base. But uh, we were ran into problems there because we've got sculpted waves and wakes on there. So stickers didn't lie flat. Um, No, it was Warlord uh, that said, uh, why don't we just uh, stick uh, uh, the names on the side of the uh, ships? And that's one of those moments you think, I wish I thought of that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, I love it. Well, let, let's talk about the game itself, shall we? Um, hmm. Now, the, when you play this game, the, the, you're playing a mission, you're playing a scenario, and there are turns within that, of course. Um, now, this is not a you-go-I-go game where all of your ships do their moving and shooting and all of that, but it's also not, and then I go um, with all of my ships, it is also not what we see with a lot of Warlord games, which is a chit-based game where you're reaching into a bag and pulling out an order dice or something like that effect to determine who's next. Um, it is very much a unit by unit. So in this game, the turns are divided into four pieces. You have the initiative phase, you have the movement phase, the firing phase, and the cleanup phase. Now, in the initiative phase, if you and I are playing, both of us roll a 10-sided dice, and the person um, who wins that roll Um, gets to move one of their ships first, and then their opponent moves one, and then it goes back and forth until everyone's moved. Then, same thing with shooting. So while the initiative roll is important every turn, um, it isn't going to, you can't alpha strike, quote-unquote, your opponent and take them off the board, but you also have a little bit more uh, dependability about what's happening next uh, than when you would in, say, bolt action, which is a nice change uh, and is, I think, indicative that it was written by someone from Mongoose, not Warlord. Um, but it's cool, and I think it really does add a lot tactically. Um, how did you guys come about with that system? Did Was it just a lot of gameplay? Uh, basically, yes. I mean, the the root of victory at sea is in our old Occult to Arms Babylon 5 space combat game, right. um, which uh, assumed um, uh, a 2D environment for ships. Um, and once you do that, you've basically got a naval game in space, which is why I started thinking about uh, moving it to uh, the sea in the first place. Um, but no, the, the central um, core of the games that um, Mongoose uh, works on when it comes to miniatures at least, is that the uh, the fundamental rules, the core rules, if you like, take up as few pages as possible. Um, and if you have a look at um, your rule book, you'll see the um, movement rules, the actual text uh, takes up less than a page. Uh, the attack chapters, the uh, attack mm-hmm. phase chapters, the, uh, the biggest one, that's what, four, five, six pages, something. Exactly. Um, What that allows us to do is two things. Firstly, when you're actually playing the game, the rules become invisible because um, you've played it through with a rule book once and um, after a game or two, uh, you already know all the core rules and chances are you'll never need to refer to the rule book um, for them ever again. Um, So first you've got... Um, I I keep talking about the invisibility of rules um, because then you can concentrate on the actual on the actual game on what's happening on the tabletop rather Mm -hmm. than worrying about um, uh, whether you're in uh, whichever range band uh, and what special rules are applying. But as a game designer, what that also allows you to do is then layer rules on top, um, whether they're advanced rules or special rules. 
uh, things like um, uh, radar and different weapon traits and, uh, of course, aircraft and PT boats. Um, and the whole point of that is while the game does get more complex, it doesn't get complex for every time you play because you're only drawing in those rules um, for uh, certain fleets, certain battles, certain scenarios. Right. So it doesn't all become this one huge mess. Um, and yes. basically, at the end of the day, the whole point is for uh, players to concentrate on what they're actually doing rather than how the rules dictate how they do it. Yeah. If that makes sense. That does. And having, uh, just to hark back to my old age, there were uh, moments growing up where I was introduced to naval games in variety, uh, of a variety of forms. Uh, and some of them were like Starfleet Battles, the Star Trek game. Uh, I... I swear you needed a community college course in order to figure out how to play like a, a basic scenario. The rules were intense. And a lot of my experiences with early naval games were that. And, and I understand there's a time and a place for a game with that many charts and that many rules. But the fact that I had, as you said, I read the movement rules today and it was a half a page. And I went, this makes absolute clear sense and battleships are supposed to turn like battleships uh to pardon the uh the the uh, common phrase uh and i think this game gets it right you have a turning uh gauge it it's um that you use that you place next to the ship and for every two inches a ship moves you can make up to 145 degree turn one way or the other and so the larger the ship sort of the <laughs> the weirder it gets when it's turning. And again, you're lining up the ship with where the bridge is. And so you really do get a feel for these lumbering behemoths. In fact, one of the rules, I believe, is called lumbering. Um, moving around the board. But again, it's really clean. It's easy to pick up. And so you can focus on your ship's special rules. You can focus on the hard decisions that make for a good tactical game without being bogged down in 35 pages of how to move a ship. Um, it's easy to pick up, but there's nuance there to allow for tactical flexibility. It's great. Well, the I mean, you pick up on the how naval games have been approached in the past, and this certainly doesn't apply to all of them. But there was a period True. in the 70s and 80s, um, not just in um, war games, but uh, also very much RPGs as mm -hmm. well, where people tried to be um, simulationist, tried to include rules for absolutely every little thing possible. Now, the problems with that is, firstly, it bogs the games down and uh, something you should be able to complete in an hour ends up taking uh, all afternoon. Um but it's uh, the, the the two angles there is um, firstly, if you're playing a game, that kind of simulation detail is simply not needed, especially if you're um, using a D6 uh, based system. Right. And once you're scaling up to include not include not one battleship but um, a fleet of ships. Um, you don't need that kind of detail. You don't need to work out the angle of penetration of a shell that's been uh, flung over 20,000 yards and how that um, right. uh, affects a certain piece of armor. Just make one roll to hit, and you don't need to worry about exactly where on the uh, ship that shell has landed. You just need to know the overall effect. The The other side of it, of course, is we have uh, decent computers these days, um, and if you want that kind of simulationist detail, 
play a computer game. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, each ship, correct me if I'm wrong, each ship has a different movement value. It's not like some games where everyone moves six inches, for example. Um, you guys actually sat down and did the math so we don't have to. Speaking of simulation, not. That's Yes, we did. Um, we actually did this for um, a huge amount of specs for each individual ship so we could distill everything down into a D6-based system. Um, so um, uh, to take um, uh, movement as an mm -hmm. example, we um, uh, looked at the um, top speeds of uh, every ship that's uh, present in the game, um, uh, as much as we could dig up from a historical perspective. Um, and then we just put that into brackets, um, uh, basically converting knots into inches. Um, I, haven't, I haven't got the formula in front of me at the moment, right. but we did that with everything. We did it with um, uh, armor thickness and um, uh, the firepower of guns, for example, um, and also the total damage scores, which we um, tended to root in uh, displacement tons. But at the same time, we look at each individual class and make any um, uh, modifications on top of that formula to um, uh, account for any weirdness or special designs or anything. Right. Yeah. And so each ship, and as I said, as ships are moving, um, they can they can make a turn of up to 45 degrees, either right or left, um, every two inches. But you could move three or four inches and then make a turn or not turn at all. Um, but it does, there is the that forward momentum. So if you're moving, you have to move at least an inch and you are moving in a particular direction and you might have trouble maneuvering around that depending on how many turns you can get going in a turn. Indeed. I mean, that's um, uh, another things we started looking at. You mentioned before turning like a, a battleship and having these big lumbering things. That's how we initially approached it when we started working on things way back in um, uh, before the first edition was released, because that's how we'd done it in space combat games. If you get a big dreadnought spaceship, it's going to move slowly, it's going to turn slowly, but it's going to have lots of firepower and be heavily armed. Right. Turns out in the real world, it doesn't always work like that. Battleships huh. and, um, are rarely slow, um, and they can. some of them can turn... Um, uh, amazingly quickly um uh, you could see some um uh, footage of um uh, ships turning um and if they're really going for it you will see them start to bank you will see um crews start to uh, grab hold of things because these great big ships can often turn a lot quicker than um you might think so we adjusted the the core rules to take that into account but we also graded ships um I basically put them into one of uh, three categories uh, for turning. Um, so you've you got the standard, which is what the, the core rules you've got in front of you um, mm -hmm. uh, say. But we've also got lumbering ships, as you mentioned, but also agile ones as well. That's right. Nice. Yeah, and that really does give each ship a flavor. Um, again, without bogging down with pages upon pages of rules. Um, That's and, it. And, we, yeah. we didn't need to put a turn rate stat into the game. We just needed to grade ships um, uh, how, how they turned on an abstract level. Um, the vast majority are standard, but um, you always want the, uh, the exceptions in there. Definitely. Well, let's talk about something where we do get a little bit more granular, uh, granularity, I, so, I suppose, and that is 
the the gunnery phase. So after we've rolled initiative and then everyone's moved, then the shooting starts. And uh, just like we talked about before, the first player who has initiative gets to choose one ship and they fire first. Then their opponent chooses a ship and they get to fire. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. So it is kind of important to know who's going to shoot when and you need to plan that out because each ship has a variety of weapon systems. Each of those weapon systems has its own facing. Now, often they share facing, so you're not trying to you know, one trying to, well, I'm going to roll this weapon here and then this weapon here, you can actually group it pretty well. Um, if, if I'm reading this correctly, but you can split dice is to your, uh, anti-aircraft weapons. So if you're getting attacked by multiple squadrons of planes, your AA guns can fire in different directions to try and take them down. Meanwhile, uh, your big guns can be firing at another battleship and your smaller guns can be shooting at something nearby. Um, so there's a little bit more uh, granular. It's it's a lot more granular, if that makes sense. But I th- but it again reads well, and it's a streamlined way of doing that, where you're not just having a certain dice pool for a ship and saying you have this many dice. You do have the specificity uh, of the weapons on the ship, but it is still streamlined. Um, can you go into more detail on that? Because I hope I didn't just butcher it. <laughs> No, that's fine. I mean, the, in terms of game design, it would be lovely if we could just have a dice pool for, uh, uh, for a ship and say, this is all your weapons, um, throw, throw your dice out as you wish. Yeah. But the problem with that is different weapons do different things on a ship. For instance, right. on a battleship, you've got your um, uh, big main guns in their turrets, and you're using those to um, blast away at uh, cruisers and other battleships. Uh, you've got your secondary weapons, which are going to do very little against the battleship, can cause um, the cruisers problems, but they're mainly there to deal with um, uh, small ships like uh, uh, destroyers. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you've got your anti, uh, anti-submersible stuff, you've got your anti-aircraft stuff, um, you've got uh, dual-purpose um, uh, secondary weapons that um, can be used either as light guns or anti-aircraft. Right. So you do need to be able to um, give players those choices uh, during the game. Um, now, we did have an advantage with World War II in that <clears throat> aside from um, a handful, just a handful of um, some uh, strange or weird ships, all vessels tended to have very similar fire arcs for very similar weapons. Um, so you got your standard two turrets at the uh, front and one or two at the back, and that's easy to handle within within the game. I mentioned before we'd done a World War One version. Things get um, uh, a little bit stranger then, and we've recently been working on um, an American Civil War version, and that is just an absolute nightmare for uh, for games design because the fire arcs are all over the place. Yeah. I can imagine. At least, yeah, in World War II, things were more standardized uh, for manufacturing purposes. And so, yeah, you just, it was, they had the design down at that point. Um, but I, I want to mention something that we talked about before. It's I love that in this game, you don't just have the weapons, though. You don't just, as you said, you have turret, the, you have multiple turrets, and you list the weapons and the dice on each ship card. So the ship card's very important because all the information you really need to play once the game gets started is there in front of you. And we'll talk more about the card in a second. But as we talked about earlier, if you're beyond 30 inches, 
you're beyond the curve of the earth. And you might say, well, that's beyond, you can't shoot beyond 30, but you can. Um, there's rules for firing beyond the horizon, which I think is great. And of course they did in real life where you need to have spotter planes and you can shoot at uh, in, in placements on land or stationary ships. And yeah, it just adds just that other layer to the game. Of course, you're gonna have a really hard time hitting, but that exists. And it, it doesn't just mean that 30 inches is where the game starts and stops. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, you also, I mean, you've mentioned splitting fire and, or I guess I mentioned splitting fire, but you mentioned submersibles. Um, and with submersive, you know, if you're attacking those, Torpedoes are usually a pretty good way of either being attacked by or attacking um, submerged vehicles, and torpedoes are a part of this game as well. Uh, in fact, some nations are better at hitting with, with torpedoes than others, depending on the time period. Um, oh, you... absolutely. Yeah, don't don't play the U.S. Navy um, in the early part of the war if if you want to hit anything with a torpedo. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, so how does that change, though? Because I know in bolt action we have theater selectors or eras when you're playing, you're, you try and theme your army to a particular time period. And that sort of limits which tanks and which infantry units you might be fielding on the tabletop. How does that work with Victory at Sea? Um, obviously, there were some battleships uh, and some aircraft carriers that existed in different parts of the wars and not in others, either because they were destroyed or hadn't been built yet. How does that factor in when you are trying to plan out and play this game? Right. Well, this is more of, um, I was going to say, an optional uh, side of the game. It's mm. uh, it, Everything's optional. Um, and the more casual player is welcome to completely ignore this. But we have, each ship has a listed in-service date, which is basically where it um, uh, set sail and um, uh, started taking part in uh, military operations. So you can specify um, uh, a precise year for um, uh, year or period of the war. Uh, and if anything goes, um, uh, if there's any ships that uh, hadn't appeared by then, then obviously you can't use them. But we also took the opportunity um, <laughs> I have this group of people called the, uh, we call the official naval boffins who <laughs> know, um, so I'm, I'm by no means an expert on uh, world war two naval, um, uh, warfare. These guys are, uh, these guys are big time. Um, they were hugely influential in, um, getting the, uh, the realism into this game. Cause I can do, um, I can, I can do my own reading, um, but uh, they've already done it and they've got access to way more books than I have. And right. if they don't have an answer, they know who will. So what um, one of them did, um, I should call him out. His name's Richard Bax. Um, very interesting guy. He went through every ship in the game, not just by class, each individual ship and worked out what refits were um were performed on the ship and when and then spec'd them all up in game terms so wow. if you want to play yeah if you want to play um uh, a particular ship on a particular year if you want to and i don't necessarily recommend this um doing this all every time for the sake of your own sanity but you can have all the equipment and all the um, uh, weapons refits 
uh, for that ship in that particular year. Um, so you will see um, uh, the basic ship stats tend not to have too many anti-aircraft guns. If you go through all the refits right up to 1945, then you'll find um, the AA scores get um, uh, boosted right up. You'll find radar beginning to appear. Mm -hmm. You'll find radar getting replaced and um, replaced with the advanced radar trait. I, uh, he has done this for every single ship. I'm not certain, but I think that might be the first time that's been done. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that I can't even imagine that as a. I mean, I would describe that as a Herculean undertaking, but I believe that that that's more of a, a god, not a demigod. That is unbelievable. Just the sheer reference material one would have to go through to to find that out and then cross-reference it. Ooh. Um, as I say, I don't. I mean, I was looking for this information myself, um, and I could be very wrong here. But I think it's the first time that amount of information on that number of shits has been collected in one place. I could be wrong in saying that. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, well, let's... Uh, and if you want to find that information and you're playing this game, um, how would you be able to do that? It's all on the ship cards. That's even better. <laughs> it's that uh. simple. Now, now I should, I should caveat that. Um, the ship cards aren't huge, so sometimes we've had to limit the information on them, um, particularly with some ship classes that either have lots of individual ships or went through lots of individual uh, refits. Um, and we have, in terms of ship cards, condensed that down. However, we do still have all the information, and I'm sure we can persuade um, Warlord to do some um, downloadable PDFs for them. God, I hope so. That would be great. Oh, just all the themed battles you can you can actually reenact on the tabletop. And I know this is a game, not a simulation. I get it. But still, to be able to theme a fleet, that's pretty cool. That is, uh, you know, that's the best way to play War Dollies, and some some people think. <laughs> I, I happen to like that. Anyway, let, let's talk about the combat phase, because we've talked about weapon systems. Now, um, when you are firing, range makes a difference. There are attack dice modifiers. Um, so for each weapon system that you fire, you roll a certain number of dice, um, you roll the hits, and if you hit, um, and of course the ifs depend on the modifiers, um, you do cause damage. Um, now, just like in bolt action, you can, if you roll a six when you're going to damage, you roll it again, and they, you have a chance of inflicting a critical. Um, and criticals do have uh, effects on how the ships perform. Now, before I get you to comment on that, uh, let's also talk about how each ship card very clearly lays out how many hull points each ship has. So it, the hit points, if we're going back to the old RPG terminology. But what's clever about this is there are two sliders on each ship card, one at the top for the tens place, one at the bottom for the ones place, that are almost like a little abacus that you just tick over as the ship takes damage. And so it's really easy at a glance to see how many hull points your ship has left, but also you not only list how many hull points the ship starts with, but at what point it becomes crippled. And it would be really easy to say, oh, you know, as the ship's fighting, sure, it can take some critical damage, but it's otherwise um, the same as when it rolls off the factory floor, so to speak, um, until it's destroyed. 
But no, in this game, when you get down to crippled status, regardless of the criticals that you've taken, you are hurting. So can you talk about the just the basic damage to ships process and how that impacts gameplay? Yeah, I mean, this is... Um... Uh, this is, I think this is actually my, my favorite part of the game for reasons I'll, I'll go into. Mm. Um, the basic idea is we've, we base the damage scores on the actual size of the ships, which by and large is derived from the, um, displacement tons of each individual vessels. And mm. that's, that's simple. And, um, you hit zero, the, the ships, uh, is sinking. That's, that's easy to understand. But that isn't really how um, ship combat uh, works, at least in World War II. And if you read the uh, reports of battles, what you come across time and time again is when a ship starts hurting, it starts slowing down, the gunfire becomes inaccurate, uh, turrets stop working. And that's how we wanted to uh, reflect things. Now, we've uh, in the first edition, we had the critical hit chart and um, uh, the crippled uh, ship rules. Um, and the, the crippled rules are, are kind of been there to create um, a baseline. When you've taken that much sheer damage, your ship is going to be seriously hurting, regardless, as you say, of the criticals you've already taken. So um, we put a, a pin under it to make sure it's um, going very slowly, it's not shooting very well, and it's basically just limping along. However, the interesting stuff is what's been happening um, before that time. Um, because you have inevitably been uh, taking critical hits. Now, these aren't. Uh, this isn't a problem for destroyers because uh, a few solid hits and a cruiser is out of. Uh, sorry, a destroyer is out, out of action. action. Yeah. Um, a cruiser is uh, can take. Will have a, a few critical hits. So you will see cruisers going a bit slower and having their weapons um, uh, have problems. But they'll very quickly become crippled after that. However, the battleships can stay around for a long, long time um, uh, in the game. So as long as they're not hit by multiple torpedoes, if they're just getting uh, pounded away at, um, they can hang around for a while. So what you see is the critical hits um, gradually accumulating. When you get a critical hit, it starts off um, by being allocated to, um, was it three locations, um, weapons, weapons. engines and uh, a general crew one which is not just about uh, the effects on the actual crew but uh, on their ability to um, function as well Um, and you start off with um, uh, a severity of one on that critical hit which means uh, if you hit the engines you've lost an inch of movement but you're not really worried about it but every time you take another critical hit in that location, it goes up right up to a maximum um, severity of six, which is where the really nasty stuff, the secondary explosions start happening. Engines mm-hmm. aren't working. Turrets have been thrown off the ship. But what we did in this edition, and this is this is the thing I really like about these rules at the moment, um, is that critical hits can now affect other locations and uh, generate their own critical hits on top of that. We right. put uh, an escalate rule in there. Um, when you hit a certain level, um, you're starting to get secondary explosions and fires breaking out. And at that point, 
you've got to start thinking to yourself, well, I've been ignoring these critical hits up to now. So I've lost one attack dice on my secondary guns. I don't care. I've lost one inch of movement. I wasn't planning to go anywhere anyway. I'm not exactly. going to even think about that. And you have um, damage control running um, every turn, but it's um, fairly low level. Uh, maybe you fix them, maybe you don't. And you don't really care either way. Mm-hmm. As soon as you reach us, there's a tipping point, though, particularly for battleships. There's a tipping point where you suddenly realize that you can't ignore them anymore, that you've got fires on all decks, that um, uh, that fire that um, uh, you had springing up um, with a crew critical role is now um, starting to cook ammunition um, on your uh, weapons uh, critical hits. So you're getting this escalating effect and all of a sudden you're panicking because you've got to really start concentrating on um, uh, damage control or you will lose your ship. Um, And you haven't, uh, this is at a point where you haven't um, lost too many hull points at all. on, on paper, your ship is fighting fit, but those critical hits are not just uh, impacting its ability to fight. Um, they're uh, they're getting worse. <laughs> You've got to do something about it. Yeah, exactly. And that is so again so cinematic. You 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 mentioned the damage control phase as part of the end phase uh, after movement mm-hmm. and firing is done. And yes, you can try and um, you know slide one of those back one of those critical areas the damage back a little bit but that isn't really going to stop the the tidal wave of damage coming and as you say once you hit that tipping point it just escalates and escalates and we've all seen that in movies and heard about you know the ship that you just watch the explosions happening all around you and the fact that this happens in this game with the big ships is it's a it's awesome uh but there is another way to try and stop this, as you say, where you 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 realize that there you don't you don't just put your arms up in the air and say, "Oh no, my battleship's doomed." There's something you can do about this. You can issue your captain can issue orders. Um, can you talk to us about how the orders will impact this and how the orders impact other parts of the game? Because orders are, from what I understand, a pretty big deal. They are. Um, I mean, you can, it's. Uh, we call them special actions in the game and um, they're kind of one of the um, bolt-on areas to the uh, the core rules that I talked about earlier. I mean, well, once you're playing the game, you're going to be using special uh, special actions all the time. Right. Um, but um, yes, it's basically funky things to do with the ships. Um, so if you want to turn even tighter, there's a special action for that. Um, if you um, if you find that you have got all your decks on fire, there's a special action to concentrate on um, damage control. It's basically um, a quick system to figure out where to put the um, resources, if you like, of the ship. Um, and you get to choose that uh, every turn. This does rely on um, crew quality checks, however. Um, and while the basic game assumes that everyone is uh, competent at their job, um, we do have um, uh, advanced rules that allow you to vary the uh, the crew quality. So um, you've got a very experienced uh, crew on your ship. You're going to be uh, taking the crew quality um, checks um, uh, with no hassle at all. However, one of the escalating effects I mentioned um, on the critical hit tables is your crew quality uh, checks do start to suffer penalties. So it, it is possible to get into a position where you can no longer do effective damage control on your ship. And there, at that point, you're, you're just watching your big, expensive battleship burn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. 
Uh, and you probably made some poor choices or had some bad luck prior to that point. But yeah, <laughs> at that point, you really are just putting your hands up in the air saying, I guess this is it. Um, now, we, we, we have talked uh, about how that, that the critical system does add, again, that granularity at the ship level to damage and really helps tell the story of what's happening. Uh, and we talked about how the ships, uh, the, the captains can issue orders um, and that you know, don't break, but they sort of bend the core rules a little bit to allow you to evade uh, people's fire or, or flood your magazines if you're truly desperate. But you also get into pages of both ship traits and weapon traits. So each ship, as you say, there are lumbering ships, there are armored decks, there are carriers, there are agile ships, advanced radar, um, there's torpedo belts. There's all sorts of traits that you can add to ships, or that ships have already, I should say, that t uh, that give that ship different abilities that others may not have. And likewise, um, not all weapons are created equally, are they? And there are weapon special rules too, like devastating, which definitely has an impact on how the weapon systems uh, impact. Uh, when they when they hit, uh, there's slow loading, um, linked weapons, weak weapons, one shot weapons, heavy weapons, and then of course aircraft traits as well. So I mean, there's there's just a, a bevy of special rules that again appear on these cards, so that when you look at the at the ship, at a glance you're able to tell what it can do, uh, what its weapons can do. Um, but it isn't as simple as you were saying before. It's not just a dice pool. You actually have some some very specific rules um, that tell you how things operate differently. Um, again, that must have taken a lot of research to figure out. Absolutely. And once you've created a trait, <clears throat> you then start um, getting uh, ships that seem to kind of like sit in the fuzzy area. Um, has this ship really earned that uh, the agile trait, uh, for right. example, or not? Um, and that's where the uh, uh, that's where the initial uh, the official naval boffins kick in and uh, start figuring it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit then about um, something I just mentioned that is actually one of the thickest sections of the the basic rulebook that I was reading. And I think that will require you to have a little discussion on, uh, only because uh, if I do it, it'll probably take a really long time. And that is aircraft. We have six pages of rules specifically about aircraft. And of course, in this game, you can have fighters, bombers, dive bombers, kamikaze pilots, uh, torpedo bombers, and uh, observation flight planes. So uh, talk to us about the role of aircraft in this game and how they uh, interact with these larger ships around them. Okay, well, we, um, we had aircraft in the first edition mm. uh, of the game, but one thing that was apparent, and I had a little bit of a bias here, or reverse bias maybe, um, <clears throat> in the first edition of the game, they simply weren't powerful enough. They were uh, an annoyance. Mm. Um, and that came about because I was trying to create a game where big battleships were pounding away at one another. So second edition, we sweep all that away. Let's make aircraft as um, uh, good as they should be. Mm -hmm. um, and once we started getting into um, those weeds, um, we started looking at types of aircraft beyond the um, uh, beyond fighters and bombers. Um, 
but we we also wanted to create a system whereby it was uh, the aircraft were more than just little counters moving around right. we wanted to make them interesting enough so you could have an entire fleet as it were of nothing but aircraft against um uh, an average um victory at sea uh, fleet on the other side of the table and for it still to be an interesting and balanced game that either side could um, uh, pull a win from um, that also meant of course that um, we could include scenarios such as Pearl Harbor and Taranto and make them interesting really so that, that was um, that's, that's kind of where we were coming from with the with the aircraft yeah, that's fantastic. And I love that um, you even have rules for landing and uh, aircraft, sorry, aircraft landing and taking off from aircraft carriers, which, of course, you know, if if you spend any time looking at World War Two planes and ships, I mean, you kind of want to do that anyway. But to have the rules to actually do it is it's great. You know, you, you can have planes taking off mid battle. Fantastic. Uh, you can do. Um, I mean, historically speaking, if you've got an aircraft carrier actually on the table and it's trying to launch aircraft, then something has been going very terribly wrong. So, wrong. Exactly. Yeah. We so we we do also have the <clears throat> uh, we put the concept of uh, a deep deployment for aircraft carriers, which means you can effectively have them off the table. Um, and they're just sending their their flights um, into the battle, which is a more realistic way of doing things. Exactly. Um, and I think if you're if you're going through the rule book, we'll be touching on that when we get to the uh, victory at sea scenario later. <laughs> yes. In fact, uh, I yes. Uh, let's let's. Well, I, I almost uh, let's do talk about um, the kamikaze or the kamikaze um, quickly. Um, now, this is a game where the core set is Pacific-based. We do have a U.S. fleet and a Japanese fleet in the basic core game. Um, of course, we can add, you can play the Kriegsmarine, or you can play uh, the British Navy along the way as well. Um, and you can play in other uh, theaters. However, um, I do love that, having grown up in Japan, that this, it, this game takes place in the Pacific. And uh, uh, again... Uh, part of that conflict towards the end of the war, absolutely, kamikaze were part of the war effort, and this game takes them seriously. Um, would you like to talk about how you tackled them? Because they are not your average uh, fighter and bomber. No. Um, I mean, when in the course of play, um, what aircraft are normally doing is the, uh, the dive bombers and torpedo bombers are trying to get close to the... Um, uh, to their target ships before uh, uh, veering away and the uh, fighters are either trying to stop them or escorting them um, uh, effectively staying in base combat and if you send a, uh, a fighter in to um, uh, try and take out the torpedo bombers you'll end up fighting the fighters rather than the torpedo bombers who get to go on their own merry way yeah. um, kamikaze of course um, fundamentally different in that they're actually trying to move into contact with the um, uh, with the target ships and uh, doing a serious amount of damage if they manage to get there right exactly well you did mention scenarios so let's talk about the war at sea scenario now this is really interesting because if i'm reading this right unlike a lot of warlord games where you might get six or 12 core scenarios in a basic game 
there are scenarios in here, and we'll get to those too, but the war at sea scenario is... It's variable. It's you have one sort of catch-all scenario that has uh, you roll on a chart for possible objectives, and I believe there are ten different ones that you can get at rolling two d six. But there's different objectives. There's different deployments. Um, there's special rules that factor into that, and you do very clearly lay out if you are looking to play this game in a more competitive. Uh, scenario, um, there are you know literally missions that are laid out that you can that that tie well together to um, give you a nice rounded battle. Um, there's also more historical, uh, more historical ways of looking at it. Do you talk us through this because this is a really interesting chapter of the book that I really need to spend more time studying, but I, I really enjoyed reading the first time through. Uh, well, first, I'm going to have to put my um, hands up um, and say the the fundamental concept of um, that scenario, um, I, I regret to say, is not mine. It came from um, uh, Jervis Johnson and his um, first edition of the Adeptus Titanicus uh, rules. Mm-hmm. The basic idea being is you can have one scenario which is lovely from um, a game design and uh, indeed page count uh, point of view Mm. being able to cover a huge range of um, battles Um, and what Jervis did was um, basically take the idea that um, two forces uh, meet in battle but they're going to have different objectives um, that they want to complete as part of a wider war effort um, so um, one side might be just want to um, uh, sink everyone, but uh, the other side is um, all they're trying to do to win is get a, a few ships um, uh, away from the battle. So they they go off and complete their main mission, whatever that is. So to make it more um, suitable for naval battles, um, the two main things we did was... Um, uh, add some uh, scouting rules um, because you don't have um, the likes of uh, satellites and AWACS in World War Two, so yeah. you actually need to go out and find the enemy. Uh, and when you're playing this scenario, that's going to affect the choice of the uh, fleets you take. Um, obviously, observation aircraft very important. Um, uh, you can use ordinary fighter flights um, uh, to uh, fulfill that role as well. So aircraft carriers suddenly become important. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also um, designate um, destroyers and uh, cruisers um, to detach from the fleet and go looking for the enemy. Now, the advantage of doing that is you get um, uh, a number of scouting dice which you roll, and whoever rolls the highest um, uh, has um, a a, a certain set of advantages. The downside is those forces you've detached have a good chance of uh, not being able to get back to the battle in time. Um, What the the scouting does is um, change your deployment area, so instead of just being um, locked to your back line, you can start... Um, moving ships uh, up the flanks, which if you've got a destroy heavy force, is going to be a very interesting idea because you're going to get into torpedo range a lot quicker than the um, uh, than your opponent will. 
And you can also, as I mentioned before, put uh, carriers into deep deployment. If you haven't done your scouting properly, your carrier is going to be on the table and open to attack um, almost straight away. Well, after missions, we get into uh, national rules. Uh, there's a, a section for each, and we have the big heavies, of course. We have the U.S., we have the Japanese, we have the British, we have the Germans. And there is a little footnote for Italian and French planes, um, but largely um, there is a sort of a page summary for each nation, and it gives you some special rules in some cases, but some nice background information about the navies of each of those nations. And it gives you an example of some of the aircraft and one battleship. And I have to say, I was a very happy camper, uh, and I may have snorted coffee through my nose when I was reading the Yamato on the Japanese page. So happy it was A there. Uh, of course, it would probably have to be being sort of one of the most iconic Japanese warships of all time. However, um, I was so used to looking at the, because I don't have the actual ship cards, I'm working off of a book. I looked at the heavy cruiser card uh, at the beginning of the book uh, for the example, and that's what I've been working off a lot of my notes off of. And that ship has 23 hull and it's crippled when it gets to seven. Uh, what, of course, I have no idea of scale in this game because I haven't played it. But when I got to the Yamato and I saw that it's, it, it is 146 hull. <laughs> and then it's crippled at 48. It's amazing. I just want to put that on the table once. Ugh. That's uh, it. The Yamato is probably not going to get uh, sunk in many games. What will happen is it will accrue so many critical hits, it just becomes non-functional. Yeah. But so cool. Uh, it is, of <laughs> course, uh, you know, I believe you can have eight of the heavy cruisers for the one Yamato point-wise. Oh, and this game does have point values, kids. I know I haven't mentioned it. Um, each card uh, for each ship... Um, has a very specific point value, allowing you to play uh, balanced games um, where you have roughly equal forces, even though one person may have a lot of small ships, or, uh, as Matthew said, a bunch of planes, and the other person has, uh, you know, one big behemoth, <coughs> Yamato. Anyway, um, how... How did you find uh, setting national rules? Because I know not every nation has one. Um, I know the U.S. Is, uh, has some early war torpedo issues, as you mentioned earlier. Um, talk to us a little bit about how uh, each nation has its own flavor um, or if that just sort of played out in how the cards were written. Yeah, the we wanted to put... Um, uh, basically have something funky for each uh, nation. Um to differentiate it um, further from other fleets because you can get into a situation, there, there are exceptions to this all over the place, but one light cruiser can be very like another light cruiser uh, in a different fleet. Um, and this is um, something that crops up time and again in um, uh, historical games. Mm. Um, because we're all working from the uh, same technology, we're all humans, um, and you don't always get um, uh, the differences that you would automatically put into a fantasy or sci-fi game. Right. Um, now, fortunately, World War II has, does have a, a huge spread of um, differing ships, 
Um, but we wanted to put something a little extra, something uh, a little bit interesting um, into each fleet that will guide the way they play. Um, you mentioned um, very poor um, torpedoes for the US Navy at the start of the war. Um, another favorite of mine is the um, uh, Japanese uh, fan salvo uh, rule. So mm -hmm. if you've got the long lance torpedoes uh, and you're playing um, uh, a battle on the tabletop, um, sure, they have um, a little bit extra range compared to the um, uh, others that uh, other nations are using. But the real benefit to using them is that you can do a uh, pre-battle fan salvo. So those torpedoes are already in the water before the um, fleets actually start engaging, reflecting their um, uh, not only their greater range, but also the way they were actually used um, uh, in, in warfare. Um, so you do have a chance of getting torpedo strikes, possibly even sinking ships before the game actually starts if you're Japanese and you've got the um, enough of those uh, long lances in your fleet. So <laughs> awesome. yeah, it's, it's just yeah, it's, it's just a way to do um, funky, interesting things um, while reflecting um, either the use of technology. Again, um, poorer German radar is another one that um, uh, springs to mind there or um, actual textual doctrine that the um, fleets tended to engage in. Um, I say the the fan salvos one and mm -hmm. um uh, uh yes that's that's the the line we, we, we wanted to go in nice well let's i think that i think we've done a, a pretty good job of summing up the game in general i mean clearly we can go down many rabbit holes here and hopefully uh we will soon uh, and hopefully I can have you back because uh, if you haven't guessed, guys, I'm super excited about this game. Um, now, I do want to point out that at the time of this episode's release, uh, Victory at Sea will either just have come out or will be within days of coming out. Uh, now, I do want to point out that Warlord does have quite a few fleet boxes and ship boxes that you can uh, get to augment what comes in the basic box. But as always, I do like to talk about what does come in the basic box. Um, with the basic game, at the moment, it is the Victory at Sea Starter, the Battle of the for the Pacific, not of the Pacific. Um, you do get the rules manual that I've been working off of this evening. Uh, you get a token sheet, which gives you the all-important uh, movement dial to uh, maneuver your ships. You definitely need those. Um, you get 15 Warlord resin model ships. We've been talking about them uh, quite a long time earlier in this episode. Um, some notables, the US, uh, USS Indianapolis, the Northampton, the Chicago. Uh, and then on the other side, we have the Mogami, uh, the Kamano, uh, the... Uh, here we go. Uh, Furutaka uh, and the Fubuki-class destroyer. You get three of those, and you get six Fletcher-class destroyers. So you get some, some fairly large ships, but you also get a lot of destroyers to maneuver around the tabletop. You get the ship cards, obviously, and the damage sliders that we talked about before to track damage on those ships. Um, there are 15 ship cards in the box. You get 10-sided uh, dice. You get six-sided dice. But more than anything, uh, well, besides the ships, I'm super excited to see you not only get one, a zero size C mat, you get two. Uh, so you actually get to play out a fair 
amount of uh, distance on the tabletop. It's very cool. Um, do you want to add anything about the the core game, Matthew? Are you? It, it looks like a great deal. Um, I hope so. Yes, um, I, th- I think you've uh, pretty much covered the uh, uh, covered the contents. Um, uh, I mean, Warlord um, took the uh, the core game. Um, I've done some very interesting things with it. For instance, when we were uh, playing things uh, through and um, uh, putting the actual game together, we didn't have ship cards, but um, um, we, we just weren't planning for them. But uh, all took uh, one look at um, uh, what we'd done and uh, uh, immediately said, yeah, yeah, we, we're going to need ship cards. Yeah, let's, let's do that. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I do love that you do also get, and I did mention the fleets. Now, if I look at the U.S. Naval Fleet box, um, you get ships, you get the New Mexico, you get the Essex, which is, of course, is an aircraft carrier. Um, you get the Houston. So, and I could go on and on. Um, you get eight vessels, uh, and you also get uh, four stands of aircraft. So you really do get quite a lot in these fleet boxes, but if you are looking for the big ships as well, I did mention the Yamato, um, which I will absolutely be getting. Um, you can get for 15 pounds, you can get that big honking battleship to put along with your fleet, which is absolutely fantastic. And I will be doing. Um, so, yeah, all up, there are just a lot of really exciting releases to get into for all four navies right off the bat um, when you are wanting to get into this game. Uh, it isn't like some games where you end up with one or two fleets and then you have to sit and wait and wait and wait. You can get playing right off the bat. And I know for a fact that Warlord's got more up its sleeve uh, for later releases as well. So plenty to be excited about. Matthew, can you uh, give us any teasers? Or I think uh, Warlord's probably given us enough in our uh, Christmas stocking, so to speak. Uh, do we just have to wait and be patient? I, I think you will. I mean, as I say, we um, <clears throat> uh, when we uh, passed the rules over to uh, Warlord, we also gave them over 100 3D models we'd already done for ships uh, across a wide range of fleets, um, including some that uh, aren't in the uh, books. I mean, you mentioned the Italian uh, fleets and the Marine Nationale. Um, so yeah, they've and I know they've already got their own 3D designers working on um, ships that we haven't provided, uh, we weren't able to provide for them. So um, yeah, I think um, people are going to be um, uh, fairly swamped for choice. Brilliant. I hate it when that happens. Hate it. It's terrible. <laughs> Well, Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. I think, uh, sadly, that is the end of our episode. Um, Guys, thank you so much for reaching out. I know we have had, this is literally the most requests we have had for any topic to be covered on the Warlord cast. I'm so happy to be able to uh, finally uh, come through with you guys and give you uh, the the Victory at Sea episode. for those who are looking for more Victory at Sea content, uh, I'm hoping we will do another episode uh, once the game is released and has a little sea legs like we have done with some of the other game systems. Uh, also, you will know that the Warlord Games podcast is part of the Cast Dice podcast network. Um, I have a podcast aside of this. It is a general gaming podcast called Cast Dice. Uh, if you would like to contact me, which is where everyone has been, um, you can go to Facebook and 
type in Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. If you type that in, if you go to that Facebook page and message it, hi, my name is Brad. I will answer guaranteed every time. Uh, now, I am so excited about this game. I will also be covering it for Cast Dice as well. Once I have my copy and I've played a few games, I do like to talk about uh, games once I have boots on the table, so to speak. But uh, of course, this time, it, I think it'll be more like swimming in the ocean. But once I've figured that out, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, Victory at Sea in some depth. So ladies and gentlemen, there is a lot to be excited about. And we do have other great Warlord content coming up soon. Uh, we have had lots of uh, feedback about the theming armies episode of Bolt Action that we did recently. Uh, and some people saying, where's our episode talking about uh, more competitive builds for Bolt Action? Just you wait, guys. It's coming. And it's coming soon. So uh, tune in. Thank you for uh, checking out this episode of the official Warlord Games podcast. We know podcasts don't necessarily cost money, uh, but time is money oftentimes, and we do appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.